Hey guys, David Lightbringer here. Welcome to the mythical astronomy of ice and fire. And you know, I've often wondered why the Targaryens of Dragonstone didn't seem to save much Valerian sorcery from the downfall of the Freehold. No glass candles, no dragonbinder hellhorns, no more making of Valerian steel, no more using horrific blood magic sorcery to create monstrous new human-animal hybrids. Now, you can see why they might decide, yeah, no more of the Island of Dr. Moreau stuff. But the candles and the dragon horns and the Valerian steelmaking knowledge definitely seem like useful things to hold on to, right? After all, the founders of House Targaryen supposedly saw the doom coming, either by way of Daenys the Dreamer having dreamed of it 12 years prior, or perhaps by way of her father Aenar Targaryen, Lord of Dragonstone, having potentially conspired with the Faceless Men to pull off the doom. I favor the latter theory, which is why I made two videos about that. But whatever the case may be, it seems clear that the first Targaryens, either by choice or as a product of circumstances we don't quite understand, consigned most of the trademark Valyrian sorcery to the fires of the doom. From the ashes, however, rises a horrible new phoenix. And it's the same as the old phoenix. Euron Greyjoy, the crow's eye, has found a dragonbinder horn and a Valyrian suit of armor from, well, maybe from Valyria or maybe from God knows where. Archmaester Marwyn of the Citadel has learned the secret of the glass candle and has lit one in his study. And we hear all the way back in book two that the glass candles are burning again in the house of Urathon Nightwalker and Karth, whoever that is. Valerian steel swords are moving around the chessboard, presumably into positions to be used against the White Walkers at the end of the story, and there are even clues that lost swords like Blackfire and Dark Sister, the two ancestral swords of House Targaryen, might be preparing to surface. Some have also wondered if Gendry's apprenticeship to Tobo Mott in King's Landing might have endowed him with the secret of reworking Valyrian steel, creating the possibility of Gendry reforging Valyrian steel armor or weapons, just as Tobo Mott reforged Ned's ice into Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale. In other words, Valyrian sorcery is on the rise, despite appearing to have been snuffed out in the doom. Now, with all due respect to Jon Snow, who is now dead and will soon be undead, and with somewhat less respect to Fagon, young Griff, my name is Fagon, whose parentage is dubious at best, the one carrying the mantle of last living Valerian in the story is, of course, Daenerys Targaryen. She's the one who hatched the dragons, if you recall, so she's certainly doing her part to return Valerian sorcery to the world. I just made a video talking about how Danny might be the one to blow the Dragonbinder Hellhorn, so make sure to check that one out. And today I'm actually here to make another prediction about Daenerys getting her hands on yet more Valerian sorcery. Like every A Song of Ice and Fire theorist, I have my share of pet theories and predictions that I've made for the final books. But the theory that I'm going to give you today might actually be the one that I feel the most confident in actually coming true. Besides the moon meteors, of course. It goes like this. Daenerys Targaryen will gain access to a glass candle in the winds of winter, and she will use it to learn those ancient truths of a shy by the shadow that Quaithe is always banging on about. In doing so, Daenerys will be coming further into her birthright as a scion of old Valyria, and indeed, I believe the final books of the series will see Danny increasingly come to resemble a full-blown dragonlord and Valyrian sorceress. 
Minus the slavery, of course. As we've discussed elsewhere, Danny's track record of using her dragons to liberate slaves and destroy systems of slavery is a deliberate inversion and an answer to the genocide and slavery perpetuated by her Valerian dragonlord ancestors, who were not very nice people, to say the least. Setting aside that very important distinction, Danny does seem to be on her way to inheriting the full arsenal of Valerian sorcery, with both a Valerian dragonbinder horn and at least one Valerian glass candle converging on Slaver's Bay in the hands of people who want to ally with Danny. Victarian Greyjoy brought the dragon horn, of course. Today I'm going to show you why I'm 100%, 99.99% certain that a glass candle will be coming to Danny courtesy of Marwyn the Mage. As I've theorized in my earlier Great Empire of the Dawn videos, there's ample evidence to believe that some or all Valerian sorcery was actually passed down from an older, long-lost civilization of dragon lords who built a shy by the shadow. And indeed, the purpose of Danny gaining access to glass candles will be so that she can learn the ancient truths that hide there regarding dragons, the Red Comet, the Long Night, and of course, Azor High. The meat of this theory comes almost entirely from Samuel Tarley's last chapter of A Feast for Crows. It's going to come together quickly because we're given both a full explanation of the power of the glass candles, as well as all the clues we need to understand why one will soon be in the hands of Daenerys Targaryen, Valerian Sorceress. This quote comes right as Sam enters the chambers of Marwyn the Mage, along with Alaris the Sphinx. A fire was burning in the hearth, beneath a copper kettle. Whatever was inside of it smelled burned. Aside from that, the only light came from a tall, black candle in the center of the room. The candle was unpleasantly bright. There was something queer about it. The flame did not flicker, even when Archmaester Marwyn closed the door so hard that papers blew off a nearby table. The light did something strange to colors, too. Whites were bright as fresh-fallen snow. Yellow shone like gold, reds turned to flame, but the shadows were so black they looked like holes in the world. Sam found himself staring. The candle itself was three feet tall and slender as a sword, ridged and twisted, glittering black. Is that... Obsidian, said the other man in the room, a pale, fleshy, pasty-faced young fellow with round shoulders, soft hands, close-set eyes, and food stains on his robes. Call it Dragonglass. Archmaester Marwyn glanced at the candle for a moment. It burns, but it's not consumed. What feeds the flame? Asked Sam. What feeds a dragon's fire? Marwyn seated himself upon a stool. All Valyrian sorcery was rooted in blood or fire. The sorcerers of the Freehold could see across mountains, seas, and deserts with one of these glass candles. They could enter a man's dreams and give him visions, and speak to one another half a world apart, seated before their candles. Do you think that might be useful, Slayer? We would have no more need of ravens. Only after battles. The Archmaester peeled a sour leaf off a bale, shoved it in his mouth, and began to chew it. Tell me all you told our Dornish Sphinx. I know much of it and more, but some small parts may have escaped my notice. Right off the bat, let's take a moment to say how cool the glass candle is, right? And I hope you like my spiffy little glass candle Photoshop job that I whipped up. Obsidian, or dragon glass, is of course already known to kill the others. And here we have a sword-like obsidian blade lighting up with magical fire. So there's definitely strong Lightbringer vibes here. But set all that aside, and 
Just think about what Marwin is saying here with these last couple of sentences. He wants Sam to recount his entire story of the whites and the others and all the rest because some small parts may have escaped his notice. In other words, Marwin basically already knows everything Sam has done and seen north of the wall and elsewhere because he's been watching him through the glass candle. Alaris the Sphinx, nodding at the glass candle a few moments later, also confesses to Sam that ours was no chance encounter, Sam. The mage sent me to snatch you up before you spoke to Theobald. He knew that you were coming. Marwyn has this whole thing on lockdown, in other words, thanks to the glass candle. His knowledge and power is really only comparable to that of characters like Quaithe, who also has a glass candle, or Bloodraven, who watches everyone through the Weirwood Night, of course. That's how powerful these candles are, and thus we begin to comprehend how unstoppable the Valerians truly would have been. Valerian sorcerers and sorceresses could communicate over any distance, and they could spy on seemingly anything they could think to pay attention to. Presumably, Marwen has been paying attention to Sam and the Night's Watch because he understands the threat that the others pose, and thus the importance of the events at the Wall and beyond. Indeed, in the next paragraphs of this chapter, we find that Marwyn is highly concerned with, well, all the same things we readers are thinking about in regards to the climax of the story. This is Sam Tarley again, Sam the Slayer, finishing the recounting of his many journeys. Maester Aemon believed that Daenerys Targaryen was the fulfillment of a prophecy, her, not Stannis, nor the princeling whose head was dashed against the wall. Born amidst salt and smoke, beneath a bleeding star, I know the prophecy. Marwyn turned his head and spat a gob of red phlegm onto the floor. Not that I would trust it. Gorgon of Old Gis once wrote that prophecy is like a treacherous woman. She takes your member in her mouth and you moan with the pleasure of it and think, how sweet, how fine, how good this is. And then her teeth snap shut and your moans turn to screams. That is the nature of prophecy, said Gorgon. Prophecy will bite your prick off every time. He chewed a bit. Still. Alaris stepped up next to Sam. Aemon would have gone to her if he had the strength. He wanted us to send a maester to her, to counsel her and protect her and fetch her safely home. Archmaester Marwyn, ever the black sheep amongst the grey sheep, goes on to explain how the powers that be at the Citadel aren't so fond of dragons, Targaryens, glass candles, or sorcery in general. When Alaris the Sphinx asks Marwyn what he's going to do about all this information, Marwyn makes this declaration. Get myself to Slaver's Bay in Aemon's place. The swan ship that delivered Slayer should serve my needs well enough. The Grey Sheep will send their man on a galley, I don't doubt. With fair winds, I should reach her first. Marwyn glanced at Sam again and frowned. You, you should stay here and forge your chain. If I were you, I would do it quickly. A time will come when you'll be needed on the wall. So did you notice how Marwyn is kind of acting like some sort of general in the last battle here? I mean, he's all like, yeah, I'll just bounce over to Slaver's Bay and help Danny with those dragons and that whole Azor High Reborn thing. And you, Sam, you learn what you can here. Then, you know, meet me at the wall in time for the last battle where I plan to make use of you. Right. Uh, yeah. Marwyn's in charge, I guess. Now, Marwyn's intent clearly is to join Danny's a-team of advisors and allies in the East, and he's likely going to try to point her in the direction of the White Walkers. Because of the power of the glass candle, Marwyn is one of the very few people in the story with eyes on both the dragons and the White Walkers, 
and he seems to think he knows what needs to be done in order for humanity to survive. He really is kind of a self-appointed general in the army of the living, and he's not wasting any time in doing what needs to be done. The wisdom and counsel that he could give Daenerys it's basically immeasurable, from his knowledge of arcane matters and ancient prophecy, to knowledge of Westerosi politics and citadel politics, plus all the general knowledge that very learned maesters bring with them. Better yet, Marwyn is almost certainly bringing one of these big shiny glass candles with him to Slaver's Bay. While it's true that we see Marwyn the Mage flee the scene without tucking the glass candle under his trench coat. It's not the only one the Citadel possesses. That's right. This is from the prologue of A Feast for Crows. Pate knew about the glass candles, though he had never seen one burn. They were the worst kept secret of the Citadel. It was said that they had been brought to Old Town from Valyria a thousand years before the doom. He had heard there were four. One was green and three were black, and all were tall and twisted. Now, the Citadel only uses these glass candles for a kind of strange initiation ritual where the acolyte is forced to spend all night in the dark with a glass candle as a sort of proof that magic doesn't exist. For the candles typically have not lit up for anyone in years and years and years. Ergo, no one really cares that Marwyn is just sort of using one of the Citadel's candles for mood lighting in his chambers. And probably no one is keeping a super close eye on the other candles that they may have. Marwyn himself is actually the Archmaester of the Higher Mysteries with a rod, ring, and mask of Valerian steel, so he's probably in charge of the glass candle inventory anyway, such as it is. Thus, it pretty much would have been a piece of cake for Marwyn to grab one of those other candles, place it very gently inside its shockproof SKB hardshell glass candle travel case, and bring that bad boy on the ship to go help Daenerys save the world. I'd go with the green one myself, but that's probably because I'm eccentric and flashy. So think about this, friends. Pretend you're Marwyn the Mage for a minute. You've learned how to use the glass candle to effectively monitor everything worth monitoring in the world, from the wall to Slaver's Bay. You're primarily concerned with the threat that the others pose, and you think that Danny and her dragons have an important role to play in the upcoming fight to save humanity. You're now getting on a boat to travel across the world to reach Daenerys and counsel her as she returns to Westeros to try to stop the army of the dead. Now, tell me, do you bring a glass candle with you, or, said another way, dare you leave that power behind? I mean, the fate of the world is on the shoulders of Danny and those who advise her and aid her, which, which means you. So I have to think, you bring a glass candle, right? That's what you do. With the glass candle, Marwyn the Mage is one of the most powerful people in the world. But without it, he's basically just a rebellious maester with a dry wit and kind of a nasty sourleaf habit. I think we have to say that the glass candle is simply too invaluable of an asset not to bring to the equivalent of Armageddon or perhaps Ragnarok. I mean, they can use it to spy on the others, obviously, and also on the many foes that stand between Danny and the wall. Marwyn could use it to communicate with people like Sam, much as Quave uses a glass candle to appear to Daenerys in a sort of waking dream on a couple of occasions. I mean, think about that. Marwyn having a way to reach Sam could be extremely useful as Danny needs to coordinate with Jon Snow and the other northern forces closer to the fight with the others. So before we go any further, I just want to hammer this home because it's really just a simple matter of logic and extrapolation. Marwyn has access to multiple candles at the Citadel. Marwyn knows how to use the candles. Marwyn thinks the fate of the world is on the line, 
And Marwin is leaving the Citadel for a long time without any sort of guarantee that he'll live to make it back there before the last battle. Thus, there's really no chance that Marwin didn't bring a candle with him, in my opinion. Yeah, the candle is big and delicate, but that's why we have the SKB case. Not kidding aside, the candle is only about three feet long, and it can easily fit in some sort of trunk and then be brought along for the long sea voyage. The Summer Islander ship is about the safest passage that Marwyn could hope for, as they command absolute superiority on the water and with the bow. They got those golden heart tree bows. So Marwyn should have no difficulty showing up in Marine with an intact glass candle, or maybe even more than one. That's right, he's just going to saunter in there after the fighting dies down, hopefully close to the time when Danny returns to Marine, and he's going to just whip out that glass candle and be like, hey baby, check it out. Uh, sorry if I worded that poorly, but you get the idea. He's going to be quite the ally to Danny and her team, and I imagine he'll have no trouble gaining acceptance. In fact, Danny's even heard of Marwyn the Mage before. That's right, when Danny next hears the name Marwyn the Mage, it won't be the first time. All the way back in A Game of Thrones, Mirimaz Dura mentions Marwyn when speaking to Danny of a shy. When I was younger and more fair, I went in caravan to a shy by the shadow to learn from their mages. Ships from many lands come to a shy, so I lingered long to study the healing ways of distant peoples. A moon singer of the Jogos Nai gifted me with her birthing songs. A woman of your own riding people taught me the magics of grass and corn and horse. And a maester from the sunset lands opened a body for me and showed me all the secrets that hide beneath the skin. Sir Jorah Mormont spoke up. A maester? Marwyn, he named himself, the woman replied in the common tongue. From the sea, beyond the sea, the seven lands, he said, sunset lands, where men are iron and dragons rule. He taught me this speech. A maester and a shy, Sir Jorah mused. Tell me, God's wife, what did this Marwyn wear about his neck? A chain so tight it was like to choke him, Iron Lord, with links of many metals. The knight looked at Danny. Only a man trained in the citadel of Old Town wears such a chain, he said, and such men do know much of healing. In other words, when Marwyn shows up with a glass candle and claims to have knowledge of Valerian magic and lore, Danny's gonna think, oh yeah, that's right, Marwyn. I know for a fact that he has been to Ashai and studied magic there. I don't tend to think that Danny would hold it against Marwyn that he once learned with Mary Mastor, and then Mary Mastor was responsible for Rago's death. Uh, to me, that doesn't make sense, but leave your opinion in the comments by all means. This detail, included all the way back here in the first book of the series, also shows that George was already planning to bring Marwyn into Danny's plot from the very beginning. So it must be important, right? Danny certainly does have a lot to learn about all things dragons and Valerian sorcery, and Marwyn is just the sort of person to teach her. In A Feast for Crows, Roderick the Reader Harlaw, Asha Greyjoy's uncle and member number one of the Marwyn the Mage fan club, drops some information on Marwyn the Mage as he looks up from a book to greet Asha. Archmaester Marwyn's Book of Lost Books. He lifted his gaze from the page to study her. Hotho brought me a copy from Old Town. He has a daughter he would have me wed. Lord Roderick tapped the book with a long nail. See here? Marwyn claims to have found three pages of signs and portents. Visions written down by the maiden daughter of Aenar Targaryen before the doom came to Valyria. Marwyn may be skeptical of prophecy, but that doesn't mean he's not interested in it, right? 
As you can see, it's not just the Azor High prophecy that he's thinking about. He's gone and tracked down a few pages of one of the most obscure books of Valerian prophecy and dragon lore ever written. Danis the Dreamer is the one who supposedly foresaw the doom, and she apparently gave many other prophecies besides, enough to fill an entire book which is called Signs and Portents. Marwyn's interest in Valerian magic and prophecy goes back years, in other words, and he's likely to possess knowledge that few, if anyone else, does. One wonders where he found those pages of signs importance. Perhaps in a shy where he studied for years, or perhaps some other remote, far-flung location. Or perhaps he found them in the library of the Church of Starry Wisdom, because Marwyn may be a member. From the A Feast for Crows prologue again. The mage was not like other maesters. People said that he kept company with whores and hedge wizards, talked with hairy Ibanese and pitch-black summer islanders in their own tongues, and sacrificed to queer gods at the little sailors' temples down by the wharves. Queer gods at little sailors' temples Maybe a reference to the Church of Starry Wisdom, actually, which, quote, persists to this day in many port cities throughout the known world, according to the World of Ice and Fire. Old Town and Ashai are both port cities, and Starry Wisdom Cult is an astronomy and astrology-based religion, and those kinds of religions have always been popular with sailors and seafarers, who, of course, depend on astronomy for navigation. The Church of Starry Wisdom was supposedly founded by the Bloodstone Emperor, so, of course, it's intricately tied to the idea of occult magic, and that's just the sort of thing that Marwyn likes to research. And, of course, according to my theory, the Bloodstone Emperor reigned from Ashai, so the Church of Starry Wisdom should have a very strong presence there. We also know that Quaithe, the Shadowbinder, is from Ashai, and, of course, she uses a glass candle to visit Danny remotely. Boy, let me tell you that Quaithe, who literally dispenses wisdom to Danny by making her face appear in the sky as a mask of starlight, is almost certainly a Starry Wisdom cultist. Check out the Church of Starry Wisdom video in the Great Empire of the Dawn series for the full story there. We also learn in A Dance with Dragons that Starry Wisdom cultists practice their religion atop scrying towers, and of course, the glass candles are specifically a type of scrying magic. So it seems like Starry Wisdom Church and glass candle use may just go together like peanut butter and jelly. So, when we see Marwyn studying magic and prophecy at Ashai, visiting the queer gods at the dockside temples, and somehow knowing how to use the glass candle, it seems likely that he's either a Starry Wisdom cultist or that he's simply running in the same circles and studying the same lore. Heck, I mean, Marwyn and Quave may well know each other, either from Starry Wisdom Church service itself or simply from studying similar magics in the same city. After all, it is kind of suspect that Marwyn has Sam repeat his whole life story right there in front of the glass candle, right? I mean, who was on the other end of that thing listening? Quaithe or some other Starry Wisdom higher-ups, maybe? At the very least, both Marwyn and Quaithe seem to want Danny to use the dragons against the others, and both seem willing to use all their arcane knowledge and power to help her do so. Bottom line? Marwyn the Mage is not just a maester who's staring at the suddenly burning glass candle at the Citadel and wondering what's going on, but rather the closest thing to an expert on Valerian sorcery that we've seen yet. And he's headed Danny's way. How convenient. Let's hope he brings that incredibly powerful magical talisman with him. I know I would. Now 
Now, why do I think that Danny will be using the glass candle as opposed to just Marwyn using it on Danny's behalf? Well, besides the fact that Daenerys is a true scion of old Valyria, whose arc seems to be trending towards more magical power and knowledge. There's actually a specific clue that Quaithe drops in A Clash of Kings about Danny needing to go to a shy. The woman took a step backward. You must leave this city soon, Daenerys Targaryen, or you will never be permitted to leave it at all. Danny's wrist still tingled where Quaithe had touched her. Where would you have me go? She asked. To go north, you must journey south. To reach the west, you must go east. To go forward, you must go back. And to touch the light, you must pass beneath the shadow. Ashai, Danny thought. She would have me go to Ashai. Will the Ashai give me an army? She demanded. Will there be gold for me in Ashai? Will there be ships? What is there in Ashai that I will not find in Karth? Truth, said the woman in the mask. And bowing, she faded back into the crowd. Now, George has actually admitted that this has become a bit of a lost plot thread and that he's since decided against having Danny physically go to Ashai. Instead, Danny has been repeatedly visited by Quave, who continues to tease the idea of secret knowledge from Ashai concerning dragons and Danny's destiny, beginning no later than a storm of swords, but perhaps earlier, Quave is very definitely using the glass candles to astrally project herself into Danny's mind and directly communicate with her. And she's probably also using the candle to enter Danny's dreams, where Quaithe appears to be sort of coaching Danny through symbols and experiences. For example, Danny dreams of fighting an alternate version of the Battle of the Trident where she's mounted on a dragon and bathing her ice-armored foes in dragon flame, which causes Danny to feel that this is how it was meant to be. She then wakes to find Quaithe astrally projecting herself into the room. So it seems clear that this is a Quaithe dream meant to encourage Danny to think about riding dragons and melting icy foes. Now it could be that Quaithe will continue to sort of spoon feed Danny cryptic little morsels until the time is right to reveal the crucial secret truth waiting in a shy. But what if Danny were to take the initiative herself? With a glass candle from her friend Marwyn the Mage, Danny would be able to explore a shy remotely and maybe figure out what's going on there. Perhaps this is how Danny will go to Ashai instead of physically going there as Martin originally planned. Perhaps Danny will take us readers on a lovely tour of the Bloodstone Emperor's Black Meteor Shrine at the Corpse City Stygi. Wouldn't that be nice? Or perhaps simply having a glass candle will enable her to communicate more effectively with Quaithe. Quaithe does seem limited in her ability to speak to Danny, either by choice or by simple limitation of magic. So maybe what we need is a full glass candle walkie-talkie set, right? Or perhaps Danny needs to turn the tables on Quaithe a bit and sort of get outside the bubble of knowledge that Quaithe has created for Danny, much in the same way that we could see Bran exploring the Weirwood Net beyond Bloodraven's awareness and perhaps coming to different conclusions about what he should be doing. The line between teacher and puppeteer is thin indeed with the Blood Raven Bran and Quaithe Danny relationship. So there may come a day when the pupils must gather their own wisdom and make their own decisions. Bran, of course, has his own link to the Weirwoods, and I hope you'll agree that it seems all but certain that Danny will soon be staring into the eerie, unwavering, unnatural flame of her very own Valerian glass candle. Finally, it seems to me that the secret truth of a shy 
may well have something to do with the great empire of the dawn, whose gemstone-eyed emperors appeared to Danny at the climax of her Wake the Dragon dream in A Game of Thrones. As you probably recall, they had the silver and gold hair of the Valerians and Targaryens, and they held swords of pale fire. And if they really are the ancient pre-Valerian Dragonlord Empire who built a shy before the Long Night ever fell, then they would indeed have the primo ultra-dank sorcery, right? The oldest secrets about dragons and the Long Night and Azor High. Just the sort of thing Danny needs. One also wonders how these kingly ghosts of the Great Empire of the Dawn appeared to Danny in her dream anyway. What, are they like still alive in some sense? Did they have some way of preserving their spirits somewhere in the ether? If so, a glass candle may be a great way to contact them, right? Glass candles and weird magic are both forms of astral projection, and we've seen that magicians who travel the astral plane can sense one another, even if they use different magics to get there. If Danny were to use the glass candle, she may well contact other magicians or even other entities, and she'll also be making it easier for such magicians or entities to find her, should they so desire. One person Danny should be wary of out there on the astral plane is Euron. Because I think Euron's had a glass candle for some time now. That's what all this, the glass candles are burning again in the house of Eurothon Nightwalker business is about, in my opinion. I think that's Euron's alias when he's in Karth. But that's a story for another video. So make sure you're subscribed to the old YouTube channel with the notification bell set to all. And please hit the like button and leave a comment below. Those things really help. You can also support the program through a one-time donation at paypal.me mythicalastronomy, link below. And by the way, that's also how you can pick my brain if you have a random question. And you can also support the program by signing up for a monthly donation via the Patreon link in the description of the video below. Thanks so much for watching, everyone, and I'll see you next time.